Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John. And I have here with me Auntie Sue. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. Auntie Sue, who's our storyteller today, amongst others? Well, the one we're going to talk about is Dr. John. Who's he? What's his real name? His real name is John Hammond, and he's married to me. That, boys and girls, is why Auntie Sue was laughing just a little bit at the microphone. Yes, we are Dr. and Mrs. Hammond, and I have a lot of stories for you, and they are so exciting. And they're written by a man called Eric B. Hare. He lived a long time ago. In fact, he was a missionary almost 100 years ago. And he lived in Burma, and he wrote some fantastic stories. And he was a great storyteller. Did you know, Auntie Sue, when I was a teenager, I actually heard Eric B. Hare telling stories? You told me about that, and it turned your life around. It really did. And I'm so excited to be able to read some of these stories. And you know what? We need Jesus to be with us. And I'm wondering, Auntie Sue, if you can pray that the stories will go well and that the boys and girls will receive a blessing. Can you do that for us? Yes. Loving Father in heaven, thank you so much. We can come to you once again. And we ask that you'll place your hand on us and on the stories that are told. And may the little hearts that hear them be receptive. We leave ourselves in your care and keeping. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. And boys and girls, you might have seen me already on A Day with the King, which comes on every week, because I'm the storyteller who tells the stories about Mrs. White. Boys and girls, we love to hear from you, your letters and your drawings. And we need to know, Auntie Sue, where shall they write to? Can you tell us, please? Yes, you can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, P.O. Box 752, Morissette 2264, New South Wales, Australia, or email at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check us out at the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Now, boys and girls, make yourself comfortable and listen to our storytellers in the Children's Story Hour. Hi, girls and boys. This is Uncle Alan, and today's story, Most Honest Boy. For months and months, Owen had been longing for a new bike, a mountain bike. He hated the way his battered old racing bike clattered and rattled as he rode down the street. Someday, he told himself, he would have a new mountain bike, like some of the other boys at school. But when would he have enough money? He had been to all the bicycle shops in town, but the cheapest mountain bike with all the extras he wanted cost over $200. $200! It would take ages and ages to earn that much money. 
Then one sunny morning he cycled into town on an errand for his mother. As he approached the shop his mother asked him to call at, he saw a small dark object lying on the ground. It looked like either a woman's purse or a man's wallet, so he jumped off his bike and picked it up. It was a small wallet. He opened it and his eyes grew big with wonder. It was full of money. He began to count it. Guess how much there was? Folded neatly together and looking crisp and new, there were eight $20 notes, two $10 notes and four $5 notes. Now he could get his new bicycle. Or could he? A little voice inside him said, No, this belongs to somebody who may be very worried over losing it. You should take it to the police station. So that's where he went, and he was glad he did. He was taken to see the chief constable, who said he was very proud to know any boy who would turn in a wallet with so much money in it. Then the chief looked carefully through the wallet and came across a photograph of a young man in his sailor's uniform, with a name on the back of it. I think we can trace the owner, he said. Anyway, we'll try. Owen left and went back home. He felt just a little bit sad that so much money had come and gone so quickly. But deep inside he was very happy that he had done the right thing and turned the wallet in to the police. But that wasn't the end of it. The next day the police phoned to say that they had found the owner. He was a young sailor just back from abroad. He had had trouble with an old car he was driving and got underneath it to see what was the matter. That was when the wallet had fallen out of his back pocket. He was very thankful to get it back. Owen was glad too. He told himself he would have hated to have bought a bicycle with money that belonged to a sailor home on leave. That would have been awful. How happy he was that he'd obeyed his conscience. But that wasn't the end of the story either. A week or two later, Owen received an invitation to dine at the Rotary Club. He couldn't believe his eyes. There must be some mistake, Mum, he said. They must have got the names mixed up. Why would all those grown-ups want a boy to come and eat with them? I don't think there's been a mistake, said his mother. You'd better plan to go. What Owen didn't know was that the chief constable had told a businessman about Owen and the wallet. And that businessman had told another businessman. And he had told another and another. Then they had all put their heads together and decided Owen should be publicly honoured for the good deed he had done. So they gave him a wonderful dinner and presented him with an envelope containing money to put towards his new mountain bike. After the meal was over, some of the businessmen chatted with Owen. Arrangements were made for him to do odd jobs, washing their cars or mowing their lawns. By the time he left, Owen knew that it wouldn't be long before he could afford his mountain bike. Nevertheless, he was still rather surprised to see the banner headline in the local newspaper, Most Honest Boy in Town.
G'day boys and girls, I'm Auntie Cecily. Draw in closer so that we can continue together with our story about Libby and his bush friends. We're moving on to Chapter 12, Libby and the Sultana Jar. One night, when Libby was little, he discovered the Sultana Jar open on the kitchen shelf. His nose twitching, he stood on his hind legs and put his head in the jar. Not being able to reach the sultanas, he climbed right into the jar, leaving only the tip of his tail draped out over the rim. From that moment on, Libby took possession of our sultana jar. We used another container for our main supply, but always kept some sultanas in Libby's jar. It got that way that Libby would look for sultanas every night. We allowed him to climb inside the jar and have a sultana or two or three before extracting him from the jar and putting him outside. One evening, when it was time for Libby to go outside for the night, he was happily munching away at the sultanas in the bottom of his jar. The jar was lying on its side. On impulse, Barry picked up the jar and walked outside to the laundry. He then tilted the jar over the high laundry shelf and Libby slid out, still munching away at the sultanas. Libby was so preoccupied that he did not seem to realise that he'd been taken outside. Libby's exit in the sultana jar soon became a regular nightly ritual when he visited. In time, the exit ritual changed slightly. Our house had cathedral ceilings with exposed internal beams and rafters. As Libby grew bigger and stronger, he developed the habit of scampering up one of the posts in the dining room with a wedge of red apple that we gave him each night. After settling on one of the beams close to the ceiling, he nibbled on the apple at his leisure. After eating, Libby cleaned himself thoroughly. He was very particular. He did not like messy wet paws or sticky whiskers. When he finished cleaning himself, he usually sat and dozed. He was never in a hurry to go outside. The first time Libby climbed up the post with his apple, he was still there when we wanted to go to bed. When we called him down, Libby glanced at us casually and stayed put. No amount of coaxing had any effect and we couldn't get to him easily. Even if Barry stood on a chair and stretched his arms, he was not tall enough to reach Libby, and we did not want to have to fetch a ladder to get him down. Barry thought that he might be able to entice Libby down with the offer of some sultanas. He opened the sultana jar and held it up as high as he could so Libby could smell the contents. Sure enough, Libby scurried down the nearest post jumped onto Barry's shoulder and stuck his head in the sultana jar. While Libby was busy with the sultanas, Barry walked out the back door and tipped him onto the laundry shelf. Libby's passion for sultanas had saved the day. It was not long before the new exit ritual was firmly established. 
The Sultana Jar made it possible for us to leave Libby on his beam until we were ready to go to bed. Sometimes he would be there for more than an hour, dozing and surveying the activity below. Libby was not a naughty or disobedient possum. He was a wild bush animal that could not be trained in the same way as a domestic dog, for example. And that was a good thing. It was important that Libby remain tough enough to survive in the bush. We had to ensure that he did not become too reliant on us. The Sultana Jar gave us just the level of control we needed to enjoy Libby's visits. As time went on, Libby learned to associate the noise of the lid being tapped on the jar with Sultana time. He came down immediately. He was allowed to eat from his jar or take sultanas out of our hand as we took him outside. He never seemed to mind being taken outside this way. We placed the remaining sultanas on the high laundry shelf and he hopped onto the shelf after them. There we stroked him good night while he polished off the last of his reward. Libby's love affair with the sultana jar never waned even when he got too big to fit inside. He continued to squeeze his head and shoulders into the jar right throughout his adult life. If we left the lid of the jar lightly screwed on, perhaps half or three-quarter turn, Libby learned to unscrew the lid himself. He would twist the lid with his front paws, then bite at it to flick it off. The rest was easy. He simply climbed in as far as he could and helped himself. The only problem was that Libby was never quite sure when to stop. He seemed to need a helping hand to pull him out of the jar so that he didn't overindulge himself. When it came to Sultanas, Libby never gave up. He was determined to reach his goal. We never taught him to take the lid off the Sultana jar. He had such a passion to eat sultanas that he just wanted to get past the lid. We made it easier for him, but it was his own diligent effort that made the difference. God promises that we will be richly rewarded if we diligently stick at the tasks that we are given to do. Proverbs 13 verse 4 in the last part says, The soul of the diligent shall be made fat. God is saying that we will prosper and do well if we stay on a job until we have completed it to the best of our ability. Libby provided a good lesson for us never to give up on worthy goals just because there are obstacles in the way. The task may seem difficult, but if we persist like Libby did, we will also be rewarded. And of course, God helps us to reach our worthy goals, just as we helped Libby to reach his. Boys and girls, it's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. 
one of the most uh, powerful preachers that I heard in the Fijian language was a man by the name of Pastor Penny Tavondi. Pastor Penny Tavondi was a powerful preacher. He loved to preach uh, publicly or run Bible studies in the home. And uh, our church was growing rapidly under his ministry. He preached in isolated areas and some of the outer islands. But then he took on the tremendous t- uh, task of taking the gospel to the island of uh, Fiji Levu, the main island of Fiji. And uh, so he went out on the King's Road where we had virtually no influence whatsoever. There were many villages along this road that ran between Suva and Nandi and Singatoka. And so uh, he started out there and he began to preach in village after village. There was uh, one man that used to thieve cattle. He was a he was a rustler. You'd call him here in Australia. But uh, he used to go and steal the cattle over there on the northern side of the island amongst the Indians and the cane fields and he'd take them off into the thick bush up in the interior of Fiji and hide them away there for several months, feed them up and get them nice and fat. Then he would take them down to the Suva side of the island and sell them and that's how he made his money. And uh, he happened to be around when he had heard this man preaching and everybody in the, in the centre listening to this man preaching. And he'd sit there and listen for a bit and then he would go and raid their houses and their umus and get all the food and have himself a good feed and then lose himself in the bush again and nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew who was stealing their food. But this man would do that night after night. Every time that Penny Tavondi was preaching, he was there. And little by little, it it got to his heart and he finally surrendered his life to the Lord. And while he was uh, there, uh, he decided he wanted to serve the Lord. And he didn't know how he could do that. He said, I'm a, I'm a rustler, I'm a, I'm a cattle thief. What work do I know? I don't know how to preach. And so uh, we thought about it for some time and trying to figure out how we could give him some employment. And then there came the task of uh, looking after cattle on our college property on the north side of uh, the island there. We had a school up there and it had a big area of land and carried some cattle. We thought, oh, well, it'd be a good place for him to be. And so we got him a job up there looking after the cattle. We didn't have to pay him much. He was given a house to live in and... uh, some food every day and he could run his own garden. He was very, very happy. And I visited him a few times and he was always there with this great big black beard. So he got the name of Blackbeard. And uh, I can remember walking up there one time and visiting with him and he was doing a good job looking after the cattle and running a good garden and helping around the school. And I said, hey, oh, he said, I love it here. He said, it's a peaceful place. He said, I love the people here. Oh, but he said, I get lonely. I get so lonely. He said, they've all got their families. They've all got their husbands and wives, and they've got their school. But I've only got the cows. He said, I had cows when I was out in the bush too. He said, at least I've got them legally this time. He said, I just get so lonely. I said, oh, that's too bad. But keep up the good work you're doing, a wonderful job here. I never thought any more about it. And then some months later, I was visiting over on one of the other islands, and uh, we have a school over there. And in that school there, there was uh, one of the 
ladies who was attending the meetings that we were conducting there was the daughter of the Methodist minister. And uh, she was attending regularly, and she'd been a student at that school. And when she decided to be baptized, she had to go home and tell her parents. Well, the parents were so angry with her, she was no longer welcome in their home if she was giving up her faith. And so uh, she came out and she didn't know what to do, so she went back to school and they said, oh, well, if you've got nothing, you can stay here in the school and, and you can look after the students here and help the cooking. And so she was there working away month after month and enjoying it and feeling quite at home and becoming a good member of the church. And while she was there, I was visiting one time, and I went and visited her, and I said, how's it going? Oh, she said, it's wonderful here. She's a wonderful place. God's been very kind and good to me. And uh, then she said, oh, there's only one thing. I get a bit lonely. I see all the others, the husbands and the wives and their children, what have you. Oh, 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 what's this? And then I suddenly remembered Blackbeard over the other way. He was on his own and lonely and sad too. And I thought, oh, well, I, I don't know. I might have the right man for you. She said, oh, have you? And her eyes brightened up and she, tell me, what's his name? And I said, well, I don't really know his name. I said, I'll, I'll get him to write to you. And so the next time I was over in his area, I went up there and I took a photo of him. I said, now, you better take your beard off. Why should I take my beard off? Oh, he said, uh, I said, I think I've got a nice lady that you might like to meet. Oh, he said, I'll take my beard off. So he went and he shaved. So I took a photo of him with his beard off. And uh, I said, I'll let you know about it. Maybe you'll get a letter. And he said, well, I'll give you a letter. I don't know what her name is, but I'll give you a letter. Tell her I'm, I'm lonely, but I'd like to have my, make a friend. So some days and weeks passed by, and I was back over on that other island, and I went to the school, and here was this young lady, and... Uh, I said to her, I found a friend that I think you'd be interested in. Oh, she was so excited about this. I said, would you like this? And I showed them with a big black beard. Oh, I don't like him. I don't think he's very nice at all. I said, what about this fellow here? Oh, he's nice, isn't he? I said, well, I'll get this one here to write to you. And sure enough, he wrote a letter. And she wrote a letter. And he wrote a letter. And the letters went backwards and forwards until finally I said, what do you think about it? Oh, I think we ought to get together. So we brought them together, and they were so happy to be together that we eventually conducted their wedding. And they went to live up in the school up on the north side of Vidilevu, not far from Nandi. And uh, while they were there, uh, I was visiting one time, and I saw him there. He's still clean-shaven, and I said, how's it going? Oh, he said, it's marvellous. He said, I'm so enjoying it. I've got a lovely wife. She's a wonderful wife. And uh, he said, oh, I've got something to show you. So we went inside, and when he came out, he had this beautiful little baby in his arm and had the biggest mop of black hair you ever saw. I said, it's got everything except the black beard. And uh, he was so thrilled. But he had this little baby, and the Lord knows our every interest. He knows our every need. And one way or another, he'll lead us. When we surrender our heart and our life to him, doesn't matter what we've been, that's past, it's forgiven, and the Lord gives us a new start. And the Lord gave these two a beautiful new start. The Lord has blessed them.
Hi girls and boys, Sophie Lay here. I'm so glad you have come back to join me in listening to another segment of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel Art Miller. Chapter 7. The Day Ellen Ran Away Ellen could hardly wait to tell her mother what had happened. As usual, Mama greeted her with a kiss. What's happened, Ellen? Mama asked. You seem so happy. Mama, Ellen whispered. She still could not talk aloud. Oh, Mama, Jesus gave me the most wonderful dream while we were praying. He led us to heaven, Mama. He talked to me. To me. He talked to me. I was right there. He showed me how it will be when he comes in the sky and takes us to heaven with him. My precious daughter, Mama said, God is very near to you. He is sending a message to all of us through you. Tomorrow night, the Adventist believers meet at our house. We still don't know why Jesus didn't come October 22. We're confused, but when you tell us what God showed you, it will be like a bright light to help us understand. Alone in her room that night, Ellen could not sleep. The thought of telling her dream to a whole group of people frightened her. Oh Lord, she called out, I cannot do it. I cannot talk. I'm too young. I can't do it, Lord. The next morning, Ellen felt even worse. Where can I hide? She asked herself. She forgot how her best friend Jesus always helped her. She decided to be gone when the meeting started that evening. Ellen ran away. She didn't really run because she was too weak to run. Instead, she rode three miles over the snow in a sleigh to her best friend's house. Her friend was happy to see her, but she wondered why Ellen seemed so unhappy. And so Ellen hid, but Jesus understood. He knew how shy and frightened she felt. He knew where she was hiding and sent one of the Adventist leaders to encourage her. Ellen Harmon, he asked when he arrived, are you doing what God wants you to do? Ellen knew that she wasn't pleasing God. She didn't answer the man. Instead, she turned hurried upstairs and hid in her friend's bedroom. Her eyes didn't shine now. Tears poured from them and ran down her cheeks. She truly wanted to obey God, but she felt too afraid. The man followed Ellen up the stairs. He knocked on the bedroom door behind which Ellen hid. Tearfully, Ellen opened the door. Are you going to be at the meeting this evening? he asked. No, Ellen answered as she shook her head. The man looked sad. Ellen, he said, God has given you a message to share with all of us. We need to hear what he wants to tell us. He is using you to speak for him. I think it's your duty to go on home. Then he turned, went downstairs and out of the front door. Oh God, Ellen cried, I can't. Father, don't leave me. Exhausted, she lay on the bed. After a long, long time and many tears, she surrendered. God, if you give me the strength to go home tonight, I'll tell the group there about the dreams you gave me. Ellen did get home that night, but the meeting had already ended. A few days later, the Adventists met again at the Harmon home. This time, Ellen bravely told them everything God had shown her. Those sad people were thrilled to know that Jesus was leading them, even in their disappointment. They believed God was using Ellen as his messenger, even though she was only a teenager. Ellen felt happy after she told the group of the special dream God had given her. She had obeyed her best friend, Jesus. One day, God gave Ellen another dream. The dream seemed so real, Ellen thought it was truly happening. In her dream, she stood with the Adventist people looking toward the sky. 
They watched a tiny cloud far, far away in the east, no bigger than a man's hand. As it came nearer, it grew larger and larger. When the cloud came close enough, Alan could see it wasn't a cloud at all. It was made of thousands and thousands of shining white angels. Then she heard them singing a beautiful song, an angelic song as she'd never heard before. Above and over the cloud of angels hung a beautiful rainbow, brighter than any she'd ever seen. Suddenly she saw Jesus, her Jesus, the King of Kings. There he sat, right in the centre of the angels and the rainbow. His hair looked white and curly. Many glittering crowns sat on his head. He held a silver trumpet in one hand. Jesus blew the trumpet and people all around the world held the clear silvery tones. Alan and her friends trembled as they saw Jesus look right at them. Am I ready? Am I ready? they asked. The angels stopped singing instantly. Not one sound could be heard in the solemn silence. Then Jesus spoke in his wonderful voice. Do not be afraid. I will take care of you if your hands are free from violence and your hearts are filled with love for God. That made Ellen happier than ever. She loved God with all her heart. She had not been cruel or hurt anyone. She knew he'd forgiven and forgotten all her sins. Again, the air rang with the angel's song, clearer than any song Ellen had ever heard. The glorious white angel cloud moved closer and closer, but it did not touch the earth. Then Ellen saw something that made her even more excited. She watched as Jesus looked down at the graves of people who had died loving and obeying him. She heard his trumpet clear voice call, Awake, awake my people, you who sleep in the dust, arise. Then a mighty earthquake shook the earth. Graves opened all around the world and all of God's people came up out of their graves, alive, strong, beautiful. Ellen and her friends recognised some of the people they knew. Everyone shouted, Alleluia, praise our God. Soon they saw bright shining angels carry tiny babies and little children to their mothers and fathers who held them close and hugged them in their arms. Then Ellen felt something happening to her own body. Her thin, sickly body changed before her eyes into a strong, beautiful body that would never, never be sick again. She glanced around and saw that everyone had strong new bodies, bodies that would never be sick, never be hurt, never, ever die. Ellen looked around to see everyone as excited as she. Everyone busily tried to take in the marvellous things happening around them. She stood up and jumped. She felt as steady as a tree. She spun around. She still felt strong with no pain. Oh, Jesus was wonderful. Then suddenly, Ellen felt her feet leave the ground. She felt herself rising into the air. She looked around and saw her friends and the other Adventists rising with her. Everyone was rising. Ellen knew it was Jesus' strong, matchless love that pulled them right up off the ground into the air. Jesus wanted them all to be with him now and forever. Ellen watched as she and the others rose up to join Jesus in the cloud of angels. Right away they joined the angels in singing songs of praise to Jesus. For seven days they travelled with Jesus through the sky on their way to the homes Jesus had prepared in heaven. Ellen's dream was so real it seemed to her that it was really happening. Even though she was sad when it ended, she knew that someday it would happen just the way she had seen it.
Ranger Dan? Sounds to me like the beluga whales striking up a tune, Mrs Cameron. Beluga whales? They are white whales, aren't they, Ranger Dan? Sure are, Mrs Cammy. The beluga is a small white whale. I love listening to them sing. Look, there's the tail of one over there in the sea. You know, they're called sea canaries because they love nothing more than chatting to each other and singing praises to God all day. Sort of makes you want to sing along, doesn't it, Ranger Dan? Sure does, Mrs Cammy. You know, every creature sings praises to God in their own way. Some make beautiful noises like the beluga. Some just croak like the old bullfrog. But all of them are showing God just how much they love him in the best way that they know how. All God's creatures in their own way Sing praises to God each and every day They don't care much about how they sound they just sing about the greatest God around Well, the bullfrogs croak and the horses lay The turkeys gobble in their own special way The snakes say hiss and the cows say moo And the beluga whales sing a song or two Yes, all God's creatures in their own way Sing praises to God each and every day They don't care much about how they sound they just sing about the greatest God around. Well, the sheep say ba and the owls say hoot. The roosters crow a cock-a-doodle-doodle-doo. The tigers growl and the lions roar. And the old great donkey says aloud, hee-haw. Yes, all God's creatures in their own way sing praises to God each and every day. They don't care much about how they sound. They just sing about the greatest God around. You're one of God's creatures, so in your own way, sing praises to God each and every day. Don't care much about how you sound. Just sing about the greatest God around. That was fun. God certainly made each and every creature unique. Nothing I have ever seen on any of our adventures together, Ranger Dan, has been the same. Yeah, God certainly put some wonderful ideas together when he made the animals. Boys and girls, Auntie Nat here again. It's so good that you have come back to join me in reading the Bible. Are you enjoying reading the Bible? I hope you are. Have you got your Bibles ready? I'm reading from the New King James Version, and today we're going to continue our story in Luke. And we're going to chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. Filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And of course, boys and girls, this is talking about Jesus. Now, Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth, which was not known to be the best of places. In fact, John 1.46 tells us, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, lived a simple, humble life, dependent on Joseph's work as a carpenter for survival, in which Jesus learned his trade. 
Jesus received all his schooling from his mother, as there were no special Jewish schools nearby that he could attend. Jesus grew up in environment where he had no advantages over us. He knew what poverty was like, and he knew what hard work was like. Yet he was a happy, joyful child, and people enjoyed to be around him. Let's continue to read in verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Now, girls and boys, Mary and Joseph forgot about Jesus just for one day. And it took three days of anxious searching to find him again. This is a lesson for us not to forget about Jesus. Because if we do it, it may take us many days till we find the Saviour's peace in our hearts again. Don't forget to read your Bibles and talk to Jesus through prayer every day. Let's continue to read verse 49. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Jesus' visit to the temple in Jerusalem was a major milestone for him in his life. It was during this visit he realised what his mission to this earth was all about. He also realised the God of heaven was his father. But, you know, Mary and Joseph still didn't fully understand Jesus' mission. Let's continue in 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Now, boys and girls, Jesus obediently returned back to Nazareth with his parents and there remained for the next 18 years, working as a carpenter and taking care of his mother as it is thought that perhaps not long after this visit that his father Joseph passed away. I want to go back to that verse in 51 and talk about Jesus' mother Mary and the verse that said, kept all these things in her heart. Remember a couple of weeks ago we read in Luke 2.19 that after the shepherd's visit the Bible says the same thing. Mary knew that Jesus was the Messiah because when she was visited by the angel Gabriel, the angel had told her that, but still doubts crept into her mind. Verse 50 tells us Mary didn't understand fully Jesus' complete mission. Mary had experienced many miracles and supernatural events. The visit of Gabriel, the visit to her cousin Elizabeth... And remember when the unborn baby John leapt in Elizabeth's womb when she heard Mary's voice? The shepherd's visit at Bethlehem, 
Simeon and Anna in the temple, the wise men and the many dreams that Joseph experienced that instructed them what to do, and now hearing her son in the temple talking so wisely to the Jewish scholars, it simply amazed her. With each of these events, Mary pondered them and kept them in her heart and built up an assurance that indeed Jesus was the promised Messiah. I hope as you read these Bible verses with me that you ponder them in your own heart and it builds up a belief in your mind about Jesus. Remember there is power in the Word and I'd like to invite you to accept Jesus into your heart today. Hello boys and girls, I'm Dr. John with another story by Eric B. Hare from his book written almost a hundred years ago called Jungle Stories. And this one is called Delivering a Telegram. Now we don't get many telegrams these days, we just use emails, but a telegram was a short message that could be sent a long way and that was how Eric B. Hare used to get messages. This story is called Delivering a Telegram. Hello. No motorboat? What's the matter? Perhaps Brother Baird will be down for me in the morning. I had been to Rangoon and was bringing my wife and little girl back home from their summer in the hills. It was the beginning of the monsoon season and we had spent a whole night on the train and all day on the river steamer I had sent a telegram three days before and had with me two months' supplies besides school books for the opening of the school, and here we were at Schwegon, 20 miles from home, and no motorboat. As soon as our boat was moored, I ran ashore to the post office to see if there was any mail, and on my way, met our evangelist. He had been visiting around collecting children for school and he was on his way home too. Oh, it's harder, he called. There's a telegram at the post office for you. So with a few words of greeting, I hurried on, wondering what there could be in a telegram for me. I'd just been to the city. It wasn't likely that Brother Phillips, our superintendent, was recalling me. Hello, postman. I hear there's a telegram for me. Oh, yes, it came three days ago. What? Never. Three days? Here was the message. Bed. All well. Arriving Schweig on Thursday. Meet Hare. And I almost collapsed. No wonder there was no motorboat. Here was the telegram I had sent Brother Baird three days before. Still undelivered. I tried in mild language to show the postmaster the awfulness of his negligence, but I did not succeed very well, for he answered quite calmly, What can do? I, in turn, referred the question to the evangelist, Dara, what can we do? Twenty miles from home, with all that luggage and my family, there was a small 40-foot steamboat that made the trip when it wasn't laid up in dock, which was roughly half the time. But it took a whole day, and in addition to the usual jam of passengers, 
we couldn't count on getting more than any one or two people aboard. Tara, what can do? And then was born one of those inspirations that happen once in a lifetime. He answered, It doesn't look as if it will rain tonight. There is a beautiful moon, and it's only 20 miles. Couldn't we walk? And I added, Take the telegram with us and deliver it to Brother Baird and bring the other motorboat down with us in the morning. Oh, it was a grand idea and no sooner thought of than put into action. So hurriedly assuring my wife that all would be well and telling my little girl to look for Daddy in the tutu or in the morning, we jumped into a sampan, which was a native boat, crossed the river and set off. Now, I need to tell you, boys and girls, 20 miles is a long way to walk. Now, there was a telegraph line that goes from Shuegon to Papun, the government headquarters of our district. This line is about 60 miles long and passes right at the back of our mission. So while we had never been on this road before, we felt safe to follow the wire and taking no notice of the roads that led away from the line, we made good time. It's very hot, isn't it, said the evangelist as he bared himself to the waist and wound his shirt and jacket round his head. Oh, that's better. It was indeed very hot and sticky, and I thought I knew what this closeness meant and eagerly scanned the sky for signs of a storm. But beyond a few clouds on the horizon, the moon was shining brightly, and so on we went, past three villages, Eight miles, nine miles. Then the clouds started playing hide-and-seek with the moon. Big black ones. Now and then one tumbled down and yelled so loud. That was thunder. But we kept on. Ten miles, eleven miles. There was no moon now. The clouds were angry with it. They were angry with themselves too and growled and quarreled and spat fire and crackled all the thunder and lightning, but we kept on. Twelve miles and after an awful shudder that shook the four winds from their hiding places and sent them tearing and rushing and scurrying along the clouds with one terrific bang poured out their fury, and it rained. We were wet through at once before we could think of finding shelter, but there was no shelter from such a tropical storm. And though we sought the trees, it was just as wet there, and we realized that to get a chill under such conditions would put us both to bed with fever for a month. So we pushed on. With such torrential rain pouring down, every path becomes a river, every low place a bog, and every paddy field an ocean. All paths were covered, and the solid rain cut off our sight, even of each other. We judged we were four miles from Maizing, a village that we knew well, and we knew we must keep going. But how? Where? With the aid of the lightning, we were able to pick out the telegraph poles if we were near them, and by keeping up a continual shouting to each other, we were able to keep together, and we plodded on. All of a sudden, Thara shouted a yell of pain. What's the matter? No answer. 
Oh, Tara! Silence. Where was he? I grew desperate and made my way as fast as I could to where I last heard him. After a while, he answered, It's it's all right. Only a scorpion has bitten my foot, and the pain was so great that I could only sit in the mud and hold my foot. In a minute, I had a handkerchief tied around his leg, and the part becoming numb, we pressed on. Thara had no protection. I had an umbrella that partly broke the force of the beating rain at first, and now it was torn to shreds. I still held the handle. What's this? The lightning had revealed something ahead. Standing with our eyes all focused during the next flash, we made out a wire bridge hanging across a little creek and now a raging torrent. Were there any planks missing? We dared not think, and we were crawling slowly to feel our way across. Halfway across the lightning, all gathered it together in one spot with a tremendous flash and blinding our eyes with a brightness as strong as broad daylight, exploded with fiendish fury and hit some trees not far from us, sending a shudder and electric vibrations through everything and temporarily paralyzing us. There we clung, speechless and motionless, in the awful storm. We soon recovered and trembling pursued our journey on and on till at last we emerged from the jungle into the vast rice paddy fields behind Mazing. We felt encouraged, for through the lightning revealed an immense ocean two miles across to the other side. We could see the trees that marked the village, then we'd rest. Now it was my turn for an adventure, and it soon came. Tara had called out warningly, Look out! The water is getting deep and swift. It must be a division between two paddy fields. I think the water is shallower a little higher up. So I went a little higher up, and next minute, plunk! It was now Thara's turn to get excited. He called and called, but I had disappeared from off the face of the earth. And after going down and down for what may have been a few feet but seemed to me to be a long way. I came to the top still grasping my umbrella handle and was washed down the swift current till I was stranded on a gravel bank. However, I was none the worse for my ducking and in a minute we were on our way again. There was more water in the paddy fields than there had been in the jungle and there was mud which made walking much heavier. And as we'd been two hours battling in this terrific storm, wonderful as man's endurance can be when put to the test, it has its limitations, and we were now becoming exhausted when suddenly as the rain had come, it stopped. And before long the moon was shining again. Without the rain, we felt so light-hearted that we soon forgot our troubles, and having passed the village, pressed on and reached home about two o'clock in the morning, all was quiet. As I knocked on the door of the mission house, Brother Baird had the door opened in a minute and stood there speechless as I handed him the telegram with the familiar words, Telegram, Sahib! Telegram, Sahib! We spent a few brief moments in explanation. Then I was ordered off to bed while the sahib prepared some hot drink. 
A few hours' rest worked like magic, and rising again at 5 a.m., we went down to the river in the motorboat to get the folks and the luggage at Schwegon. Where were you when the storm broke last night? called my wife before we were close enough for any greeting. Four miles this side, amazing, I answered, and her face paled as she added, You don't mean to say you were out in that storm. Oh. But we delivered the telegram. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD Frozen Chosen on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. to see them lips that we might tell 
goodness of the Father that doeth all things well. Yes, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, and all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. All Things Bright and Beautiful was sung by Gavin Chatelier and the children. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of another Children's Story Hour. We thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have enjoyed the program. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. <laughs>